Welcome to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. In this program, you'll hear fascinating stories from science, technology, finance, and the arts. Learn how dynamic individuals created their paths to success and the wealth intersections that occurred. It's where you might just find the answers on how you can pursue your passion while creating the necessary foundation to build personal wealth. And now, here is Megan Gorman. Welcome to The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman, and I'm thrilled that you're joining us. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about something really interesting. In wealth, there's always been a concept of giving back, and this this goes back for centuries. But as we are now in the technological age, there really is something that is evolving, and that is social entrepreneurship. The idea of giving back on a broad level where, especially since we're able to disseminate information so quickly nowadays. And so I'm really excited about who I have here with me today in New York City, and that is Kunal Sood. Kunal is an internationally known entrepreneur, impact investor, and philanthropic leader. He is the co-founder and executive chairman of Novus, which is an intergenerational social impact summit and network that helps support the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals by uniting humanity through science, innovation, and technology to make the impossible possible. Kunal is on a mission to unite world leaders and innovators to reimagine the narrative around social impact and entrepreneurship, and he has made transforming the world his life's purpose by helping change the lives of a billion people by the year 2030. So I want to welcome you, Kanal, to Thank the Wealth you. Intersection. <clears throat> Thank you so much. You know, in getting ready for this interview, I, I got to read a lot about you. And yeah. I got to tell you, you are such a renaissance man, which is sort of a funny word, renaissance, to use when the, in the context of technology and social entrepreneurship. But right. tell me about, you know, you know, how did this no. path start? Uh, well, I think I've always been very visionary in the sense that um, there's that quote, right, the, by Einstein about be careful of the daydreamers because their dreams might come true right, right. in reality. So for me, my life's purpose and vision has always been uh, molded at a very young age. Like, you know how people grow up saying, I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, right. engineer, a scientist, astronaut. I actually didn't really want to be any one of those. And by the way, you and I both were born in the 70s. So, right. I mean, I think that was the traditional path to think about what your career path should be. And in India, it still is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. um, And and I came from a family business, um, but I didn't fit in. So being the misfit and the outlier, I always dreamed of being the hero. Mm. Right. And then that evolved into the hero's journey, which is something that I embarked on very early in life because I wasn't the chosen one. <clears throat> I wasn't the golden child of the family. I didn't become the engineer. Um, and and what I did do as a child was be uh, in a place of suffering. Mm-hmm. So as a child, I suffered from two things growing up. One <clears throat> was a learning disability, Okay. Uh, which Richard Branson, all of them, you know, Albert Einstein also have uh, acknowledged that you know their learning disability became pretty much their superpower later on in life, and so I too didn't know what was happening to me for the formative years of my life, and I'll never forget this one story <clears throat> when I 
went from this really loving, beautiful school, which is American, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's found, oh, maybe it was English. Maybe it was a hybrid of American is English. Is this Harrington? Exactly. I yeah. was at Harrington House. Yeah. Right. And I learned love and to treat everyone like with love and respect there. Mm-hmm. Um, was like it a fellowship. teacher that taught you that? Or was that just the no, school the philosophy? philosophy? And then I went into this private school, which was like the cool kids of the world, like the coolest kids, the most extraordinary families, you know. It was like the best school you could be in in India, let alone like the south in Madras called Sishya. And there, um, at the time, even though now it's been banned, uh, you were still allowed to hit kids in school. Yeah. Right. So my first day of school, I'll never forget, the class teacher brought me up. It was very weird because I didn't have any cognizance of this. And I'll never forget and I don't want to use her name because she'll, you know, I don't want to out any one of you. But let's just call her Mrs. John. Okay. <laughs> Clearly. Um, and, uh, and she um, introduced, I thought I was going to be indoctrinated to the class. And instead of what happened was she took a wooden scale and smacked me on the side of my, um, you know, shoulder. Oh, my goodness. And I hurt me. And then she twisted my ear. And then she went on to proclaim that um, because of my second disability, which was obesity, you know, I was an obese child. She said, if I do this to you every day, you will lose your weight. And then everyone burst out laughing at me. So I was already ostracized. So what a moment of shame, right? Yeah, exactly. That's horrible that she put you in that moment. I automatically became like this misfit. And, you know, I called myself the black Labrador of the family. Yeah. And I became the black sheep, but I'm more like a black lab of the, you know, just my group at cohort. But it sounds like when you were young, you felt it was not a good thing. But it sounds like as you've gone on your journey, yeah. maybe being different has ended up being a bit of a blessing. Yeah, yeah. Because after that, what happened was, you know, you go through the cycling cycle of bullying. Yeah. So I was bullied very early in life by both the authoritarians as well as the cohort. Right. And then it was funny because I went through the whole cycle of uh, being bullied, victim by, you know, a victim to the perpetrators. There were a lot of bystanders and there were a lot of collaborators. Right. Right. And, you know, bullies don't come in ones. They come in packs, like a wolf pack, three or four of them. And I was very blessed with a good mother that believed in me. My dad didn't get me completely. Yeah. He always thought I was a little, you know, he always <laughs> used to tell my mom, he's your son. Right. Um, but she saw. She really saw. And she gave me the strength from within. And also, I think that kind of morphed me, you know, from this black Labrador. At some point, because you keep getting nettled, you're going to either die, you yeah. know, of the victimhood or you're going to rise. <clears throat> and so I morphed into a black panther. Love and that. I didn't love that mode. I didn't love being in Black Panther mode. Why not? Because, it, you know, <laughs> when you go into that beast mode, and I call it beast mode because literally I became a bully of the bullies. Okay. Because I had to protect myself. So all of a sudden there was this new rumor in school that because I needed to protect myself. So I learned how to bully the bullies. Hmm. And then it was interesting because then all these little nerds and geeks used to come up to me for protection. Yeah. yeah, it's like they all found out that I stood up and you had to strength. this group and I had strength because I was big. I wasn't a tiny kid, you know. <clears throat> well, and I think the one thing you're you're omitting here is you also were cl- were clever and smart. Oh, and that no, prob- I was actually not. I wasn't clever and smart. I was just 
courageous. And mm-hmm. I, I think I, and because I wasn't clever or smart, I never was street smart. In fact, you know, that's something that I never learned because I was very blessed and protected in life. Uh, but I did have this altruistic and almost um, heroic mm-hmm. vision, right? And that's kind of what happened to me when I morphed into that Black Panther and went into beast mode. I often <clears throat> did things that I didn't love, like I would be aggressive. Okay. So I got into trouble. Aggressive to protect others. Yeah, to protect myself so- and then eventually others. And like literally, these small kids would come up to me, and it'd be like a cartoon when you look at like a beast looking at these small group of kids, and you knew what was happening. They were being bullied. Yeah. And I go and bully them, you know, like I wouldn't bully the bullies, but I would stand in front of them and there was a certain standoff. And then at some point they started to respect me. And like, you know, and and even then I didn't really make friends. I was kind of like still this, you know, this um this uh outlier. So it sounds like you found strength, but you struggled with the contrarianness of having that strength with who you really were internally. Yeah, because I was a black Labrador inside, loving, loyal, affectionate, yeah. always loved being, you know, um, making peace, rescuing people. So that rescue piece was very dormant, like it was very, uh, you know, solid and core to my soul. So but, this and this is when you were still in India. This is was yeah. This was only in India. So as you, I go was very this, young. I was like eight years old. Oh my goodness. Yeah, nine years old when I started this, and then I kept getting into trouble at school. My poor parents I kept, you know, <laughs> being called to school for disciplinary action against this one and that one. My mom kind of figured it out. She was like, you know, he's not doing this, and yeah. <clears throat> and and then when they figured it out, they they realized that I was doing this to find friendship. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, find a tribe that I belong to because I didn't feel like I belonged. So in this sort of journey, this hero's journey that you yeah. embarked on. Yeah. You did move when you were young. Right. Didn't you move to uh, Singapore? Oh, that was. Yeah. So that was like seven years later. So you went through this <clears throat> Black Labrador, Black Panther phase for quite a while. For about, Yeah. For at least <clears throat> a decade. Oh, wow. um, and what was interesting was, um, you know, leapfrog forward. It was interesting because what happened was um, <clears throat> I, st- I started to get close to people that were much older than me because the legend spread through school. Mm-hmm. And the guys who found me really cool, because, you know, when the legend spreads that someone's protecting the weak. Right, right. The elders usually get it, yes. you know, and they're actually uh, the coolest kids, like the Grease Lightning kids. Yes. And I was in uh, third or fourth grade and I was hanging out with kids in eighth ninth tenth grade so I was in high school and they adopted me as like this really special creature uh, and then I started hanging out with the coolest kids on the block so very early I learned how to associate with some of the most extraordinary powerful people and I think what we're going to hear in your story is that ability to be comfortable around others who have who are powerful or have illustrious backgrounds is yeah. actually a catalyst for you down the line. Yeah, I think I learned it so early on, but unfortunately what it did was it alienated me from my core group. Mm. So I never fit in with my own group, but I fit in with a very different group. And it was lonely as an experience because every time I got close to someone, they'd drop off, oh. meaning they'd be, they graduate high school. Right. And right. then I was all alone again. And they went on know? to another life phase, but you were still <laughs> exactly. in I was that. still stuck in this life phase. 
And at that point, I remember I started suffering academically, not just because of my, um, you know, because of my uh, <clears throat> learning disability, but also with ADHD coupled with dyslexia and dysgraphia and um, having this, you know, this loss of relationship. And in India at that point in time, ADHD, dyslexia, was it seen as a condition that it's, needed to be treated? It's not even seen in my humble opinion now. Really? Like, yeah, I don't really see any research being done on kids with ADHD or dyslexia. It's definitely better than back then. Right. Back then it was completely invisible. Right. Uh, but here and now, I don't think there was a kid would still be, uh, you know, deemed as lazy and uh, unintelligent versus, you know, differently abled. And uh, his ability just needs to be augmented with certain medication, treatment, right. support. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, I leapfrogged that and then I moved to Singapore because my mom. With your entire family? No, no, no. Just me. I By yourself baby, at 14? Yeah. 14 and a half, oh my 15, God. yeah, my mom, God bless, my parents were very cognizant because after the private school, my dad had this vision for me to become Iron Man, which is his yeah. vision for all of us kids because <laughs> that's what our family business is, you know, he used to call us blacksmiths, you so know. So your family business is iron. Yeah, we make um, automobile and earth moving components. Oh, wow. So we forge iron into, you know, anything that fits into a car or anything like, a, you know, those huge things that are used for uh, cranes and like stuff. Like bulldozers. Bulldozers, you name it, everything, like the gears, the you know, wow. the shafts. <clears throat> yeah, so then when my mother saw that I didn't belong at this other school, which I really suffered at, like that was probably the most difficult phase of my life. I went to a place called DAV, and they're very strict. And for those five years that I was there, four years that I was there, it was torture. Because mm. that was really like, all of a sudden, you know, I'd learned how to be a beast out in the wild. And I had my forest and I had my animals that I in the kingdom. And suddenly I was put in this different, like caged uh, environment where they basically drill you, right. you know, and I didn't, I didn't succeed. I failed. So then you went to Singapore. Then my mother took me to Singapore and, and I went to a beautiful school called UWC. Uh, United World College. <clears throat> Unfortunately, at that time, because I was obese, I also have and had a genetic disposition to asthma like my mom did. Oh. And there were the Indonesian fires. <clears throat> and I kept um, getting sick in the ER. Yeah. So and I literally almost died because I had pleurisy, which is a lot of fluid in yeah. my lungs. My poor mom had to come move there for a month and a half, try to save me. And then the teachers themselves said, take him out of here, take him out of school. So where did you go from there? New Zealand, it's so right? so funny, right? It's like I came back home. My poor parents are like, you know, <laughs> uh, concluding what is going to happen to us. <laughs> and I wanted to come to America, but they weren't excited about America because I wasn't ready for America. They, they had a very particular trajectory that America, you go for college. Right. And they were like, where can we send him where he won't be affected by the weather, by the fires, by where's pristine? And then we went to New Zealand. The most beautiful country. It was the most beautiful country. And when I went there. And still is. It's stunning. It is. I had a metamorphosis, like a literal transformation physically, where I saw all these people doing things that I loved, you know, um, like triathlon and rowing and and so I got really deeply immersed into the fitness world. Mm. And then I literally transformed from being 350 pounds 
to, I remember my first uh, avatar was about 148 pounds. Wow. So I lost all that weight. Wow. <clears throat> and after I lost that weight, then I became even more draconianly focused on going the distance. And I literally wanted to embody that hero yeah. in, you know, in my mind's eye, in its form factor. So I literally envisioned that and I believed in it and I, I did it. You know, I came back in 1996, I remember, for my sister's wedding. And I was 18, 19 at the time. And yeah, that was the b beginning of actually the second phase of my life where I completely transformed physically. So you had this physical transformation. And what was interesting to me is in learning about you is your next step was to go into fashion of all things. You know, believe and that's, it that seemed first like a surprise. But now as I'm hearing the story, it might make a little more sense. So my dream was to be a model, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, that didn't happen because my parents did not condone the modeling. <laughs> India is not like a modeling. No, they probably you know, wanted you to be more academic oh, and dad a professional me, path. No, he wanted me to, yeah. He wanted me to study and then join the family business. And even my fitness d dreams were a hobby to my father because he's very, you know, yeah. uh, he's been brought up with a very straight-laced uh, society and upbringing. And it was ironic because we had, that was the dark night of the soul phase of my life where I went through depression and then god you know god bless you know i always say god bless my parents but also god bless america because america saved my life not just once but twice wow the first time from myself because i felt like a complete failure at 20. by the time i hit 19 and a half i truly felt like i'd failed because i you know i didn't succeed on my family's accords right um and then what happened was um God bless my parents. They brought me here. New York, actually. And you went to Parsons? I went to Parsons. Actually, ironically, I I, I kind of leapfrogged the modeling world by going into the fashion world by meeting a friend of mine that was in the thick of it. And he kind of designed, you know, he was a designer. And he said, why would you be on the ramp yeah. when you could be with me? And create, control, create the vision, the whole thing. So that's where I I launched my uh, first world with fashion. And that lasted not too long, only three years. Uh, believe it or not, I got into Parsons, but it didn't start till 2000 because that whole idea of getting into school but then dropping out was very right. cool at the time. <laughs> yeah. And I realized, oh, that only works for a few, not everyone. Yes. And so then I moved on to actually finish school and and then, you know, I actually, <clears throat> during school, I went back into my love for integrative medicine and health from the fitness world. Yeah. And I used yoga, martial arts, and Ayurveda to whole, form a whole new paradigm of, I call it a doctor, a yogi, and a warrior uniting souls to become the ultimate human. And you were doing this while you were in fashion. Yeah. Which yeah. I would say, you know, you're trying to create balance. Yeah. Which you know, I, by the way, happy birthday. I know. No. You, and you're sort of a, Li Thanks. you're Libra, right? I am, Scorpio. I am a Libra. Yeah. But I think you're right at the end of Libra, <laughs> which I think is interesting because as you're telling the story, I hear the search for balance. Yeah. The extreme which, searches. Right. Yes. And, and then when I went back into, I left fashion and I went straight into health and well-being, and I plunged into the, the world pretty deep because I was very blessed to have a mentor who's kind of like a godfather to all of us, saved all our lives back home in India. 
and he invited me back to be a um, what do you may call it uh, an intern, uh, an apprentice rather. Is this when you went to Mumbai as I, a global health no, scientist? No, this is before that. This okay. was when I moved back to India for the first time, and what launched my world into that was losing him to suicide. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. So when I lost Dr. Cherian, we all lost him. The whole world uh, lost him. In fact, I remember, <clears throat> you know, when he died, there were so many uh, people that mourned his loss. But I mourned it from a deep place of feeling like I'd lost more than just a father figure. I'd lost my path. Because yeah. my path was kind of set when I moved back to India. It was, I'll work for the family business by day. And I work for Dr. Cherian by night yeah. to become a healer and a, you know, and this is like Iron Man by day, you know, healer well, by night. And suicide is such a <clears throat> difficult disease, right? Especially when someone's a healer and so on, because you feel that they can take care of themselves. And it's just suicide shocking. Um, yeah. Anyone who's gone through it, it's absolutely devastating. And it really makes you question. I think mental health here and now, uh, we have a lot of mental health problems which yeah. stem from power, you know, or wealth to just not feeling like you belong and you're needed, even though you're so connected by all these social networks and all of these devices. And so I feel like, yeah, the suicidal component of it was very, it's like the ultimate yeah. sacrifice or death. Right. Um, but I feel like <clears throat> what I've taken away from it is I wanted to focus on not how he died, but how he lived, right? And to take away from him the virtues of the lessons he taught me. So is this, so when he passed and you, you made this decision to focus on the lessons he taught you, Yeah. what did that drive you to do? Because I mean, if you think about it, you were in the fashion world. Well, I was in the family and, business and, and now. The, I was finished with the fashion world. And you were, I'd moved back into, I'd actually reverse engineered my life to find a sense of deep purpose meaning and peace within. Mm. And so I studied Ayurveda, yoga and martial arts. And that was my thesis at Parsons. And then I was invited by one of the world's most extraordinary physicians who was an unsung hero in India, who happened to be a family friend and to work for him as a placebo white coat, which all <laughs> the other white coats hated. And I totally get it now because I've been in that world and I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a brat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to yeah. actually have the privilege of sitting next to a scion of medicine, right? And then that actually propelled that his loss was really something that obliterated my world and brought me back into focusing on what matters to me most and why. And that's when I went into the world of mental health, mm -hmm. full force. I studied at a place called California Pacific, uh, sorry, California Institute of uh, integral studies. And then I worked at CPMC, which is the California Medical Pacific Center, yep. uh, Sutter Health, which yep. is more, yeah, uh, at the Institute for Health and Healing. And I really studied and worked with death and dying because I worked in the palliative care ward. Mm. And so I really learned a lot about death, and the process of death, and how to heal people as much as you can through that experience of dying. Yep. Uh, it was very valuable. And then you know, I'm very ambitious, so, or I like to go for the hero's journey, and we're very lucky to finish that experience of psychology, and I wanted to go back into the world of medicine a little, 
I went to UCSF School of Medicine and uh, for with- global health sciences. I got my master's in global health, and then I was so blessed to get on this one project, which literally I think was God sent uh, from Harvard. Uh, I I was offered to be a researcher on the ground in the slums of Mumbai. And this is sort of the <clears throat> that moment. Transformed my entire. It shifted my. It actually brought me back to center because when I arrived like all grandiose human beings, I thought I was going to change their world and yeah. save them. And then I realized when I hit the ground, I really can't save them. But I can do one thing is be of service, you know, and let go of all my ego and desires and really serve the community and allow myself to be certified by the community I serve. And I feel that's the most powerful lesson I learned that doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, doesn't matter where you came from, Harvard or UCSF or Penn. And what's most important is here now you're certified by the community you serve and they give you that um, meaning and purpose and drive to be your best. Mm-hmm. So that's where I learned to so be my best. So it became about to be of service, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because you, you've, you've, to some degree, you, you had a lot of challenging experiences and yet you were fortunate to have a lot of great experiences. But to realize at this moment to be of service was so important. Yeah, it was like that at that point where I truly learned the idea of how wealth is only one way in which you can live a meaningful life. Purpose-driven leaders don't focus on wealth. They focus on something larger than themselves. And that's what that experience taught me. When I let go of my ego and what was driving me to fix things uh, and really be of service to them, I learned to really become you know, a real world samurai or a Jedi, which is where the samurai actually uh, inspires the story of the Jedi. I love that. And I want to hear more about this yeah. and where we go from it. But right now we're going to take a commercial break. Okay, so join us in a few moments when we're talking to Kanal Sood about his journey and about social entrepreneurship. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday on Voice America Business. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your leadership journey must be a continuous process of education and improvement. If you think you've learned all you need to know, think again. 
Find out the latest from contemporary authors on topics from character to values and everything in between. Discover insights into servant leader fundamentals along with your host, Tom Crea. Tune into Your Evolving Leadership Journey, Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. If you have a question or comment about the program, your money, or what it can do for you, please send an email to megan at thewealthintersection.com. That's M-E-G-A-N at thewealthintersection.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, I'm Megan Gorman, and I want to welcome you back to The Wealth Intersection. I'm here with Kunal Sood. And in our first segment, Kunal was walking us through his journey, his journey of being born in India and going out into the world. And as we went into the commercial break, he started to talk about this key moment where he realized he had to be of service. And I think that that's such an important point because this sort of propelled you in a completely different direction. Yeah. And so, so let's t- let's go where. where so it's what? interesting when I was on the ground and. In, in in the slums of Mumbai in India with these Harvard researchers with, you know, Pukar and <clears throat> it's ironic. Um, they would always complain about one thing, funding. That's yeah. it. Yeah. At the end of the day, it was about funding. You know, even though they were so heart-centered and able to live as best they could, almost in some ironic ways, if you stayed with them, thrive yeah. through pain, suffering and adversity. Yeah. Right. Because you see the joy on those kids faces or even the adults a little more jaded, but they also learn how to live a life that's true to themselves or best they can do. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I felt like um, uh, I have to do something about this and I'm not going to. And then uh, the natural progression was a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. And I did get into a Ph.D. program, uh, but then I chose differently. I really decided to go for the moonshot. Okay. I never thought I'd get in. Okay. Um, because I I I'd always dreamed of being going to B school, business school. Yep. And I told my dad that I'm going to take the shot, you know. And then I applied to two schools because through research and counseling and consulting, and they all said you'd never get into Harvard and Stanford, so forget it because you're too old and you're not a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was. Uh, I was 33 at the time, I think. And they said, applied to Warden Kellogg, and I got into them, and then I chose Kellogg. Yes. Um, I wish I'd 
applied to Columbia as well, but I don't know why I had the ranking disorder like all Indians. Yeah. And at that time... And you've done New York. Well, no, but I love... Yes, but you know, now I retrospect, it's all about your network. And yeah. the network of Columbia is very powerful. Mm. But, you know, I think it was my destiny to be at Kellogg too, because when I went to Kellogg and I chose Kellogg purposely because it was such a team-driven leadership school. Mm. It was all about teamwork and they're famous for marketing, yeah. right? They call the marketing school amongst. And what interest, what fascinated me was, here's a school where I went to for two years, you know, and studied and worked and my butt off to get a grant for $2,000 yeah. all year. Yep. To fly there, do a little bit of work and come back. In B school, we'd be put in teams. We'd do like these PowerPoints with, you know, bringing information from hodgepodge information together. And we'd put it in front of a bunch of investors and we could raise up to, upwards of $200,000. Which is unbelievable. So you've got these two experiences, right? 2000. Working on the on the streets of Mumbai. Right, in the slums right? of in Mumbai. The slums. As a scientist, so, as then, a global health scientist. And here you are at Kellogg. And we... Working for a whole year on getting my proposal done, getting my thesis written, getting my IRB report. IRB is like the internal review board, right. getting a CHR review done, meaning I'm not going to exploit the population. Right. Get, get, I get $2,000 is enough to cover my trip, my food, maybe, and not even stay. Because yeah. right? I came from India, so I was like, fine, I didn't have to ask for stay. So two to $5,000. Whereas here on this other side, we see us come together as a team and come up with an idea that's not even feasible, but it has a market market fit. Right. right? You can a do a PowerPoint value. for it. <laughs> exactly. It, right. it fits into a market. It, it, has, it drives value. It does solve a problem or it brings a valuable solution to the table. But what sh shocked me was the stark uh, funding of 2,000 versus 200,000. It's a, it's a in 10 minutes juxtaposition. Yeah, 10 minutes and two, three weeks of change, like three weeks of us doing it. So here's my question. You're yeah. in the moment, you would have that experience. You have the ability now after going to school to see how easy it is to raise money. How do you bring the two? I'm assuming this is how the vision starts to come together about helping people across the world. Is well, that it comes full cycle. Okay, so tell me more. You see, what happens is, and people wonder how even TEDx, when I did my first TEDx, everyone was shocked how I was able to get Deepak Chopra and Lebo M, who's the composer of The Lion King, and Vinod Khosla, who's but one I'm of the best. But I'm not surprised because you said you got the high school kids to pay attention to you when you were in third grade. So You're that, comfortable with people. So it came full circle not only with that, but also the training from fashion. Mm. You know, And I thought this is a... This is a joyride compared to like New York Fashion Week, where, <laughs> where literally it's like literally the Hunger Games. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know? true. And TEDx was like a joy because people would come, they'd be respectful, they'd ask you how long they want to speak for, how much they get. They, and, you know, it's like a personal trainer, when you tell them to jump, they're going to ask you how high. And I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You're going to listen to me. And then that gave me another insight into voice, okay. the voice economy and how everyone wants a voice today, right? That is we, very true. You see, and, and the louder your voice, somehow the grandeur your influence. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's where my gift or my skill, right, became really uh, something that I 
realized was something I could perpetuate moving forward. So I did TEDx San Francisco. And this is to give a voice to people who don't have voices or a voice to everybody? Everyone. So I wanted to give a voice to both because I believe when you bring the left and the right together mm-hmm. with the right conditions, you can make the impossible possible. Mm-hmm. When you bring the 1% together with the 99%, all of a sudden you're 100%. Yeah. Right. And that's so important to me that the idea of uniting the 1% with the 99% because not all of the 1% is evil. No. You no. know, there are people out there like myself who, and I'm not saying I'm part of the 1%, but I'm saying that I've been blessed. You know, uh, I might be part of the 2% or 3% or 5% or 10%, yeah. who knows? Yeah. But people that have been blessed with a little bit of wealth don't always, uh, aren't always go getters. There are a small group that I call go-givers, you know, and I think that's the future is when the go-givers, and by the way, they're massive go-givers in the 99%. In fact, they're more philanthropic. They may not have the means financially, but mark my words, even if they have half a, half a, you know, bowl of rice that they have, they will give you that half a bowl of rice. But how do you marry that. the two? How do you how do you make this a, a vision and a career path? Like that's it's very difficult because the truth is ultimately human beings are driven by the idea of power, authority, and influence. Uh, but I believe that beyond that, you know, once you reach that, everyone does want to belong and feel like you're needed. Mm. Right. And I think everyone drives their life towards being of significance and of contribution. And how do you think money and wealth play into that? When, especially when you think back to your experience in the slums of Mumbai, yeah. what someone would feel about money there is probably very different than where we are in New York City right now. Well, I think we have a billionaire's disorder right now. Mm. We're focused on the wrong kind of billionaire. What do you right? mean by that? I mean, look, I have all the respect in the world for Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. right? And he's done really right by himself to become the richest man in the world. But he is not the kind of billionaire that mm-hmm. I would want to see flourish into the future. Mm-hmm. The kind of billionaire I'd love to see is not a man that has a hundred billion in his bank account, mm-hmm. or even a billion for that matter. I'd like to see someone that positively transforms and impacts a billion lives. To me, that's the new definition of a billionaire of the future. But how do you do that? Because I know this is what you're working on. How do you actually connect the people and motivate them to do that? Well, my gift, of course, is convening and curating extraordinary experiences to bring those, uh, to build a silver bridge Mm. that connects the two communities to start to have a deeply meaningful dialogue and see where the nexus, you know, aligns and where we can find those moments of magic and impact and have, you know, the 1% and the 99% realize and unite that they're not that different. They're all human. We're all human. Ultimately, the human experience is what binds us all and divides us all too. Yes. (laughs) Right. Um, And I feel like there has to be a seismic shift. There's, you know, a mentor of mine, Salim Ismail, talks about the immune system response from corporations, from human beings, 
just like your own immune system can start to attack you, and that's yes. how you get cancer, you get autoimmune disorders, you you know, multiple sclerosis. We have that in our organizations right now. We have that in society. Because we've become so prone to being recognized for wealth yes. that we've really lost the idea of positive emotion, you know, uh, relationship, um, meaning, and what does it really mean to be purpose-driven as a leader? Um, and I think, like I said before, the new billionaire should really focus not just on the money. I'm not saying don't make money. I believe in a good life. I believe in a wife, life, well, a wife worth living with too, but right. a life worth living, I'm hoping I someday. But um, uh, I don't believe that we need more billionaires in the world. I think we need more transformational leaders, exponential entrepreneurs. I don't believe social entrepreneurship is enough anymore. It's just like being a global citizen. Okay. I don't believe being a global citizen is enough. Uh, today you can go on Expedia and click, 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 you can become a global citizen. Right. Today you need to rise above and beyond and become an extraordinary citizen and really serve something that's much larger than you. Especially if you're born with the gift of not worrying about your next meal. That's important, right? Right. Because right. so, so, a lot of the world wakes up every morning worrying about their next exactly. meal. Exactly. And even in the United States, as yeah. wealthy as this country is, yeah. one third of this country is what we call financially fragile. Exactly. Meaning they can't even afford a $400 emergency. And that's where I feel like the 100 billionaires, you know, God bless them, but we could trickle it down. Bill Gates is a great example of someone that's leading the way with some sense of giving back, you know? He started the Give Back Foundation, the, you know, the Giving Circle, whatever it's called. The, now, uh, when you've been talking about this, what I, I think interesting is you about connecting the one percent and the other ninety-nine percent. Yeah. One of the organizations that you've worked closely with is the UN, That's which right. I think is, you know, when you think about it in the context of it, they're a logical group to go to. Right. But how does someone just show up at the UN and start to make these connections? Is this? I didn't. Okay. Okay. Well, then tell us how you, what did you end up doing? After TEDx San Francisco, just like everything in my life, remember as a child, I started to dream of something that's impossible. Okay. You know, and what would be the best TEDx in the world? And I came up with TEDx Davos, TEDx uh, Wow, which was Wonders of the World, and TEDx UN. And I settled on the UN because it gave me the I had an internal belief that the United Nations can truly, and it is, one of the most extraordinary platforms where when you walk into that door, whether you're Bill Gates or a slum dog mm. without a million in your pocket, you unite with a sense of purpose and meaning around mm. solving for the world's global grand challenges. And that's what I feel needs to happen more and more in life today. It's that authentic connection and dialogue so that you can really meet at a place where transformation starts to occur. So that's what I mean by the new billionaire. I'm not saying that all the billionaires should give up their yachts and their Lamborghinis, but you know, more times than not, it's been researched and shown when they do, they feel so much better, especially if they give it up to save someone in the Bahamas. Yeah. Like if they send a yacht to rescue someone that's dying in your backyard, you don't even have to go to the slums of Mumbai. The, grat the gratitude that you feel within permeates into the world. So I think that's the consciousness I'm hoping we can have become not just the exception, but the norm. And it shouldn't be that an earthquake has to hit or, you know, 
a Category 5 uh, a tornado or a hurricane has to devastate a whole island. Yeah. We should try and cult- cultivate that just from a place of proactive versus reactive or responsive uh, citizenship. So tell me about your current ventures, because you're you have a lot going on yeah. in trying to do this. So, yeah. so, so walk me through some of it. So most excited about the most recent one called We the Planet. OK, where we go beyond We the Peoples, which is what the U- U.N. Uh, starts with. And of course, the American Constitution is We the People mm-hmm. as well, because I feel like a, to some degree, We the People have failed, especially the rich, myself included, um, and also the powerful. And, you know, the adults, to some degree, I accept failure, you know, but I feel like if we rise above that and focus on something that's larger than ourselves, like we the planet, and not silo ourselves into these boxes, like, you know, climate change and gender equality, and because then you just have these clicks. Right. But the truth is, we all live on one blue dot, the pale blue dot, dot, and astronauts call it the overview effect. Where once you go outside, you all those borders disappear. Right. And we are one. So the idea of We the Planet is really uh, a place where we as extraordinary um, or we as citizens can become extraordinary leaders of the world. And that's one. Then, of course, the X-Fellows is my hero's journey of being an outlier and a myth- misfit. So it's about being the real world version of an X-Men. So no matter who you are and how messed up you are, because all of us are messed up. Yeah. We all have, like the X-Men, some flaw, yeah. some pain point, some that hopefully is also our gift. You know, there's a gift on the other side yes. that shines through. So how can we shine the gift on and that light in the world while containing and healing the pain and the suffering of that, you know, existence? Um, and Novus, of course, was something I started at the UN. I had the privilege after doing TEDx United Nations to take over the General Assembly Hall for one day. <laughs> That's a pretty nice privilege for Which a day. Was, yeah, it was really a blessing. Um, and we pulled off the impossible where we brought some of the most extraordinary people from uh, all walks of life together to really explore what science, innovation and technology could do. Who were some of the people there? Uh, well, my personal heroes are Peter Diamandis, who uh, you know, and Salim Ismail, who I mentioned, and Anusha Ansari, who's an astronaut, and John, Ron Guerin. And, I mean, I've had a real slew of unbelievable people, but also the people behind the scenes, like the people that are the unsung heroes, like Laura Muranaka and, you know, um, just, yeah, Scott Lazarson, who's new and he's helping us with Be the Planet. Um, you really have to remember who you are and where you come from. And it's not about you. Mm-hmm. It's about us. Mm. Or we. That's why it's we. You know, um, I believe that here and now we need not just personal leadership, but um, uh, team leadership. Because if you want to go fast, you know, you can go alone. But if you want to go far, you go together. That's an African proverb. But in today's day and age, with all the technology and innovation and conditions, we can do both. We can go far and fast if we're united. And you intermingle very easily with people, celebrities, politicians, powerful people. I wouldn't when say you, easy, but I'm, yeah, no, you it's You make never it look easy. easy. No, it's not easy. It's never easy. To, <laughs> celebrities and politicians aren't the easiest. But you <laughs> pull them in 
to be to the to create make the the impossible possible. I think, How do they react to that message? I think they want to do that at some level. The reason I'm able to connect with certain celebrities or certain heads of state is because I really come to the table without fear or favor. I don't make a deal. I don't, you know, try and strike a deal right out the gates. I really come in service of what matters to them yeah. and understand why. And then given my gifts, I try to make that possible. And I think a lot of celebrities want to make the impossible possible, just not on screen, but yeah. outside in the real right. world. And I think it's happening more and more. And that's why I'm excited to connect with celebrities to help them do that, you know, because a lot of people go to celebrities with this, uh, I don't know what to call it, maybe altruistic hope, but ulterior, you know, motive. Um, and I try not to do that because where I come from, you know, and yeah, you're right. Since I was young, I was taught not to because right. I'm so comfortable with not asking, you know, right. and giving. So, yeah, with, and the heads of state, of course, they, too, want to make the impossible possible for not just their nations, but the world. And the U.N., of course, is a massive, um, uh, you know, platform for a lot of those people. But I think I think I'm more excited about the heroes in the field mm -hmm. and the unsung heroes and bringing them together with the celebrities and the heads of state to create a truly uh, viral movement that positively shifts not just our consciousness but our actions towards a better world so how do we transform wealth yes. creation how do we transform value creation like today if you notice most philanthropists who are young mm -hmm. meaning next generation philanthropists are not identifying as philanthropists as much as we are impact driven mm -hmm. leaders and investors yep. right so either you're an impact entrepreneur or an impact investor and you're like 25 right 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 but the truth is that <laughs> that's only because you have the blessing and the privilege and you want to do something bigger than what you thought was capable of in prior generation and that's what i love is you know everyone's pushing forward greta thunberg great example unbelievable example i mean you it's, know? it's inspiring yeah. but for the for the rest of us right yeah. one of the things that i've read a little bit about what you talk about. And I think it's interesting, as a side note, you're very much about balance, right? And I think it's the fact that you were born in the East and you live in the West. And yeah. you find a very good way of sort of keeping them in balance. But I've read some of your other interviews where you talk about the fact that you think grit and perseverance is key. 100%. And, and give me some insight into that in terms of trying to get people to have wealth creation, just regular people. So I honestly believe that perseverance will always call it conquer talent. That's something my trainer taught me when I was losing 220 pounds. Yeah. And as far as wealth is concerned, I really believe that grit or the idea of sweating uh, is key towards success. And, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk is really good at connecting the dots around this. He calls it hustling. I call it sweating. <laughs> you know? The word hustle, I think, is now overused a bit much. In, I mean, in, New York, you yeah. know, it, it's very overused, but I think it's it's key mm. to what people have believed uh, wealth creation is about. Whereas I believe it's about, you know, three things. Working really hard. Mm -hmm. So sweating. Yeah. So you have to sweat. 
you know, you 10,000 hours of hard work. That's how I do this, right? right. You have to bleed sometimes, yeah. right? Internally. And you have to fall. And, in order yeah, you to have rise. to fall. And that's something that I really believe that it's not how hard you hit, but it's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's Rocky's right. byline, right? right? And and I really believe that. You sit, you know, in a place where you, you, if you fall, you know, you get back up. No matter how hard you get hit, you keep getting back up and keep moving forward. The second thing I believe is strategy. So the most important thing is, and this is Tony Robbins' whole thing is life strategies, you know, um, mastery of all of these things. So strategic output towards smart outcomes of wealth. Mm. How do you make money in a way that it's intelligent, right? So you're not sweating like you're on a, you know, merry-go-round. Right. Or a hamster on a wheel. Or a hamster on a wheel, but you're really sweating in a way that you're progressing towards a strategic outcome. And finally, it's culture. That idea of how uh, culture eats strategy for yes. breakfast. Yep, very true. And I believe that that's where we are today, you know, and that's what's going to keep you uh, in a place of meaning and belonging even beyond the wealth. Yeah. It's the culture you create because you want to be in a place where you love being there. No matter if you're making 10,000, 100,000, a million or a billion, the the through line is about having a culture that resonates with your soul, you know? And, and I, yeah, I don't, I, I resonate with Iron Man's soul, <laughs> right? So because I was taught very young and then I saw the movie and I totally fell in love with Tony Stark. Because, uh, and then uh, I would say that it's okay to be Tony Stark you know, with a heart. Yeah. That's the most important thing, that when you, you're, you're Tony Stark with a heart, then you have that culture. You have the Avengers around you. You you kind of call into your universe what you, are, you know, you put out there. Yeah. You know, so the energy you put out, you kind of attract into your inner circle. So in the closing moments, my last sort of big question for you is, you're on this hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And you're a young man, You've got a lot in front of you. What happens next? What's the next what's the next mountain we climb? Well, I'm, 2020 is the mother of all years, in my opinion, because we count down the decade of massive transformative purpose and impact. Because mm. by 2030, if we haven't uh, achieved the global goals, uh, the UN has predicted we're in trouble. And so have so many experts in the field yeah. of climate change or gender equality. So I think the most important thing for me here and now is to be draconianly focused and sweat, you know, even if I die, I die, you know, towards creating a platform where I can bring, you know, the 99% and the 1% together. And I won't be liked by everyone. A lot of people will think I'm crazy, foolish. But all the dreamers and, sometimes you know, get yeah. people saying that, so that's and, not uncommon. But as long as I, you know, stay uh, hungry and foolish, uh, like Steve Jobs said, I hope I can try and make the world a better place, place and not only be the change, but I believe in this decade we have to transform, you know, be, and really embody the transformation we want to see in the world. So that's where I am. The summit of all summits, launching, you know, X-Impact Summit, and I'm excited about the future. Your story is amazing. Your journey has been everything that you learned as a child, to hear it sort of come together for you yeah. to create this vision. It's it's inspiring. Thank you. So if people want to learn more about you, Kamal, how can they find you? Well, 
I the best way to find me is www.nov.us. That's Novus, and then www.wetheplanet.io. And if you want to email me, my email is kunal at nov.us. So these are yeah the best ways to get in touch with me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's been really great having you. And I'm Megan Gorman, and you can feel free to reach out to me at www.thewealthintersection.com or on Twitter at Wealth Intersect. Thank you again, Kunal. It's been amazing. And until next time, take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Wealth Intersection. Megan Gorman will be back with another program next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then.